Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. Fitlands 103. Send us a text. LH3 Powered by Lamb Brothers Hillamore, the home of Offaly's top selling car brand, Toyota. Fitlands 103. Hello and welcome to this week's Health and Fitness. I'm your host, David Hollywood, and on a very busy show, we'll be covering the alarming numbers in relation to available nursing home beds in the Midlands. We'll be reacquainted with an awfully woman who's helping teachers teach our children how to practice mindfulness. We hear from the Athlone Tennis Club on a momentous week for the tennis playing community in the region. And you'll hear about Boxing Search for a permanent home in the Midlands. First, on this week's show, we're talking about long-term residential care. The ESRI's latest report shows the number of beds in Health Area CH08, which covers Leash Offaly and Westmeath, has seen a decrease of 57% between 2019 and 2023. This week, I caught up with independent Roscommon Galway TD Dennis Nocton to discuss the challenge of a generation. Dennis begins by giving me his reaction to the report. Well, I suppose, look, none of this comes as a surprise to anyone that, that has been watching the, the nursing home sector uh, over the last period of time. In fact, uh, going back to my own notes on the, the 14th of September uh, of 2022, I raised this specific issue stating that we're seeing uh, small private nursing homes, family-run nursing homes closing uh, in County Roscommon. Uh, two of them in South Roscommon servicing uh, at Lone and South West Mead, another one in Bally League servicing the uh, South Longford uh, area, and that this was having an impact in terms of older people not being able uh, to source uh, nursing home care uh, near their home. In fact, uh, in some of those instances, uh, older people were transferred outside of the region altogether um, when those particular uh, nursing homes uh, closed. So this isn't, as I say, uh, a surprise. Mm. Uh, I suppose, look, there are two big driving uh, factors behind the closure uh, of the nursing homes. Some of the, the nursing homes, because of the pressure that was put on them during uh, COVID, decided that, look, they no longer wanted to stay in the business. But I know in relation to the two family-run nursing homes uh, in the Athlone area that closed, both of those uh, nursing homes wanted to remain open, uh, but the uh, fees that they were receiving from the National Treatment Purchase Fund were insufficient uh, to meet uh, their running costs. Both of the nursing homes wanted to carry out significant investments to uh, enhance their facilities, enhance their capacity, uh, and weren't able to do that based on the income that they were getting from the National Treatment Purchase Fund. And they made it very clear both to uh, HICWA, who were monitoring the nursing homes, and to the National Treatment Purchase Fund that was paying uh, the running costs of those nursing homes, that they couldn't continue to remain open based on the fees they were receiving. Uh, And as an issue that I took up with uh, Minister Mary Butler uh, at the time, Uh, and sadly, those two nursing homes were forced to close. As a result of that now, there is no uh, nursing home now left uh, in the south of, of County Roscommon uh, for people, older people in that area who are forced to go further afield now if they want to get 
uh, nursing home accommodation. And the difficulty is this is being replicated right across uh, the Midland counties. The other interesting thing that was raised in the SRI report was the need to try and provide greater support uh, for people to remain in their own homes. Mm. And this is an issue that the Joint Directors Committee on Social Protection has been looking at in terms of trying to support uh, family carers. Uh, and we have made a very strong recommendation that we need to abolish uh, the means test now uh, for the, the carer's allowance uh, to help support families in caring for an older person at home. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be a facility where families can get a break. And interesting, an issue that I raised last year in the Dáil was the, the number of respite beds that are available for families to take a break, maybe to go on a holiday or if there's a family wedding uh, so that the older person can go into a respite bed for a week or two, um, you know, for family occasions. Yes. And the number of beds across the CHO8, which covers the Midlands, Leash Offaly, Longford West Mead, uh, Louthan Mead, has reduced by 57% between 2019 before COVID and 2023 after COVID. In 2019, there were 30 respite beds available to family carers to care for an older person uh, if they had to go in for a hospital appointment, uh, if the carer had to take a break for some other reason. Um, today, there are just 13 of those beds uh, available. So while the SRI is saying that we need to care for people in their own homes, the supports that are needed to ensure that that happens are actually being withdrawn uh, by the HSE rather than being enhanced. That's a massive loss of respite beds, Dennis, and it's a really interesting point to underline that this it's just gotten harder for people to unburden the health system is what we're ultimately talking about here, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the biggest um, and most expensive types of patients to care for in long-term care uh, are, are, are patients with dementia. Now, uh, most of the private nursing homes um, don't provide specific dementia units, um, and uh, that is then left on the public hospital, long-stay hospital system to care for, for those particular patients. And again, across CHO8, which is Leash Offaly, Longford West Mead, and Louthan Mead, between 2019 and 2023, we've gone from nine uh, dementia beds down to just three dementia beds across those six counties uh, within the public hospital system. Uh, so again, you know, we're actually seeing not only the small family-run private nursing homes uh, closing down, but we're seeing a withdrawal of capacity and services within the public nursing home system mm. uh, as well, which is forcing people uh, to put uh, their elderly relative into a nursing home that's not in their area, which is further away, much bigger uh, nursing homes. And because of that, they're less likely to be able to visit them as frequently uh, as they would like to do. Mm. Uh, and this is a lose-lose situation for older people. 
Dennis, what we're saying this evening is that since the pandemic, there are less nursing home beds, there are less respite beds and uh, there are less dementia beds in this country and across the Midlands when we have an ageing and growing population. It's pretty stark stuff. It is. And, and like, you know, the SRI are, are saying that, look, the number of nursing home beds uh, have reduced, they've consolidated into a bigger uh, privately owned outside of this country by investment uh, companies. They see a financial gain for them in, in relation to that. Uh, the SRI are saying that, look, we need to look more at providing support uh, in homes. But that support, in fact, is not even being maintained. We're seeing the supports that are available for family cares that are caring for older people in their own homes, reducing rather than, than, than improving within the health service. Now, in fairness to Minister uh, Heather Humphreys, she has enhanced uh, the carer's allowance, the eligibility for the carer's allowance. And I know that she personally would like to see the means test removed from uh, the carer's allowance. But that can't happen in isolation. There needs to be a whole-of-government approach uh, in relation uh, to this. And it's not just in terms of people that require intensive uh, care, either in a nursing home or at home. Look, there are an awful lot of older people out there, and we all know them. Uh, they're living in, in large houses, in rural areas. Maybe their mobility is not as good as it used to be. Uh, and at the moment, the only choice that is open uh, to them uh, is to go into to long-term nursing home care because we don't have, you know, uh, small two-bedroom houses in our towns like in Tullamore, in Mullingar, uh, in Athlone, in Port Leash, that if these were available, that older people could sell their home in a rural area and move into uh, some of, of the local towns uh, and live much longer uh, in an independent situation or maybe pay for some help in terms of, of the cooking of meals and that. And, and that type of, of independent option that is available in many other parts of Europe is not available here in Ireland. And the crazy thing about it is that it would actually help to address the housing crisis that we have at the moment. So there is a lack of joined up thinking between the Department of Housing, the Department of Health, the Department of Social Protection and doing what is right for older people with what is coming out in this ESRI report and we do really need to see a different approach taken to a far more um, uh, global approach in terms of the types of care and support and needs that older people have uh, in our communities right across the Midlands. Okay. You've outlined there what you think the issue is pretty clearly uh, in terms of alignment and multi, uh, multiple departmental uh, breakdowns of communications maybe or, or, or strategy. Uh, just as we finish up our conversation, Dennis, can you give me what you think the main priority for any of these departments in government should be in relation to nursing home capacity? Well, I think first of all, we need to move to a situation where we can, over time, abolish the, the means test for the care. What's, what's the downside right. of abolishing that means test? Does it is, leave it open to, to uh, manipulation or fraud or, or, or what is the issue with actually taking no, it away? The, the downside to it is that you're probably going to end up with approximately 10,000 more people in receipt of uh, the carer's allowance. Cost the then, difficulty okay. is, though, 
that the assessment will be purely based on the needs of the older person to require full-time care and the person that's actually providing that care. And the Department of Social Protection don't believe that that's a role for them because people would not be getting a means-tested payment at that stage. Mm. So who's going to be responsible for that is probably the biggest uh, issue uh, in terms of it. I think in principle, there is a willingness to go down that road but who's going to take the leadership role uh, in relation to that? And that, that. will relieve I pressure do, on the capacity immediately anyway. It would. I think we do need to see that smaller family-run nursing homes need to get an enhanced payment from the National Treatment and Purchase Fund based on the fact that there is no other nursing home uh, near them to try and keep small, rurally-based uh, nursing homes open. And we need to see more respite beds and dementia beds available in our public long-stay hospitals. Okay, I think that's uh, uh, pretty clear as to what could be implemented to help uh, clear up a situation that's uh, become like a nine-headed hydra in terms of difficulties and problems. Dennis Nocton, thanks for talking to us on Health and Fitness this evening. Thank you. Next on Health and Fitness, Sinead Flanagan returns to the show to talk about how she's giving teachers across the Midlands the tools to teach mindfulness to our children. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. Now, we may have a good few primary school teachers out there who will recognise this particular dynamic, and that is as they see their classroom wind up and up and up and up, um, and they know where things are going and they tend to spill out over the top. And there's uh, a long history of uh, techniques and methods and ways of uh, helping children channel their energy in constructive and positive ways. I'm very glad to say joining us on Health and Fitness this evening is Sinead Flanagan from Crotton Hill. Uh, she's the author of Wisdom Wishes, which was a book about how to turn anxiety into a gift which can connect to your family. Uh, she's been on Health and Fitness before and she's now bringing out a new course uh, with a colleague of hers, uh, Martina Cotter, called Playful Cam Creative Classrooms, where Sinead will be teaching teachers how to teach uh, some particular techniques uh, to help children through their day. I'm very glad to say uh, she has indeed joined us in health and fitness. Uh, Sinead, thanks very much for being on the show again. Hey, David. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, tell me then. Playful, calm, creative classrooms. uh, Sounds wonderful, actually. Uh, And uh, it's as I prefaced in our little preview there, um, there's great need for it, really. So talk us through what the idea is. Yeah, so to be fair, David, it's more a response. So both Martina and myself have been going to schools, doing programs and doing workshops for, you know, a combination of about 16 years. And the thing that we have come across time and time again is that teachers say, how did you do that? Or how did you manage that? They were so calm. They were so relaxed. Can I join in? And it's not rocket science. There's lots of little action steps and tools that you can use in the classroom that are very efficient and very fast that can really change the dynamics so that your children in your classroom are aligned and open and ready to learn. Okay, let's give me a a real world example. You know, uh, the class is becoming more and more hyperactive. You really want to be able to get their attention to go through the next class and you know you need to intervene. So what would one of these action steps be like in that kind of situation? Okay, so there's a couple of options. One of the things that I would naturally do in a classroom setting when I have up to 30 students and when I'm doing workshops, you can go from very quiet to very busy class. So rather than me raising my voice, 
one of the techniques I would use would be to lower my voice. And that naturally calms. They'll okay. naturally calm because um, they want to hear you. You know, they want to I remember a lecturer in college saying to me, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're screaming or you're whispering. They want to be connected. They want to hear you. So that's one technique. The other technique we would use quite a lot and I would use is a singing bowl. So it's a little singing bowl with a wooden handle and you just give it a little ting. And no matter, it's it's like magic, no matter the noise level in a classroom, they all hear it and they all naturally will look to you then for direction. So again, rather than teacher having to raise the voice and shout, it's using something that will calm, naturally calm their central nervous system. So they're more open to responding to you and the magic word actually listening. The the natural calming techniques, they must as well have some sort of medium and long term developmental positive aspect. So, as you say, instead of raising your voice and creating conflict to create silence, um, you're probably giving the children more of a sense of agency over their own internal regulation. Yeah, absolutely. And so they can co-create. So it's, I don't know if people in general understand or can appreciate how much energy our teachers are investing in management of classrooms. It is a challenging task at the best of times to hold the attention of 30 learners and you have you know take on board that they're all learning in different ways so some people are visual some people are auditory learners and to balance all those needs so the more irregardless of the diverse diversity in your classroom everybody has a common trait which is our common um need and that's to be regulated or to have a calm central nervous system before we can learn you know, so if you can get them all on the same level by being calm yourself and using calming techniques, then they will respond to you much faster and they'll take this information on board much faster. And that's that's what we're all trying to achieve. Get them to learn. When uh, I spoke to you last time, uh, it was uh, coming off the back of um, Wisdom's Wishes, uh, your book uh, that uh, talks about uh, anxiety in children. But uh, in this enterprise, uh, you have a partner, uh, that's uh, Martina Cotter. You might tell me how the two of you guys decided to team up on this one. We were literally just having a coffee um, one day and I was talking about some of the things that I was encountering and teachers asked the questions teachers were asking me. Um, she, like me, is going into schools. She does yoga. So we were talking about the breath work that we have in common, some of the stretching that we were doing that was in common. And we were thinking, you know, a lot of the time we are giving skills to the children, but we're driving that experience for them. What if we could give some of these skills to the teachers so that they could drive this experience and they could drive the whole classroom? So sometimes I notice in workshops when I'm in school, rather than, you know, following the steps that I have wanting to to follow in my lesson plan, I will switch in response to the children. So they'll be really hyper and I'll go, okay, they need to move before I can get them to learn the next thing I want them to learn. So I'm responding to their need because I'm watching the cues. And she agreed that she does the same sometimes. And then there's a different kind of hyper because they're tired. So then I would change my lesson plan around and maybe do five minutes of, you know, guided breath work and then 
give them the lesson. So imagine how powerful it would be for teachers themselves, but also the classroom and the energy of the classroom and the atmosphere in the classroom if teacher was able to do that instinctively. And it's the wonderful thing about it is it's really fast. It can be achieved really quickly. It's interesting listening to you talk about the idea that you can kind of create your own bespoke program through this for the needs of the classroom in that moment in time. And through different kind of guises on this program and and on Midlands 103 generally, I've noticed in the education sphere, things are inching in that direction generally. Is that your experience uh, in, in terms of dealing with the education setting? You know, I went through primary school in this country and I remember how proscribed everything was. Um, I don't know what your recollections are in that regard, uh, but how do you see the dynamic and the movement and travel of of teaching techniques and and these kinds of techniques in this country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would concur with what you said. It was learning by route, but now our classrooms are much more um, diverse in terms of um, our the children that are now in the classroom, because there's a push towards inclusivity, which is a wonderful thing. But the children in the classroom now are, there's a broad spectrum of learning abilities, learning needs. And that's a wonderful thing if our teachers are supported to meet those needs. And I think possibly, you know, we're still catching up. Um, There's maybe the balance is tipped towards stressing out the the teachers at the minute, there's a lot coming at them in terms of needs, but there's a lot they can do while we wait for um, the services to catch up. Like some schools are, um, you know, supported with the, the additional classrooms for the ASD units. That's the word I'm trying to think of, the ASD units. But some schools aren't there yet. And there's a lot of work being done, but we are still in a catch up phase. Um, so I think the more we can empower our teachers with skills, the easier that transition will be. And I think that's a good thing. I do think it's a good thing that our classrooms are more diverse, but we do need to match that with some supportive skills. That's an interesting point, because my next follow on question was going to be, mm-hmm. is there a tipping point? Uh, is there a case at which things become too much for teachers or children have too much agency or uh, whatever it is? Now, you've kind of spoken to that Um but it sounds as well like what we've got is the the knowledge is out there if we want to capitalize on it. But it just depends on time resource for teachers. And that's a very uneven dynamic ac- across the country and across the Midlands, I imagine. Yeah, it depends on which school you go to, depends on the amount of students in that school. Um, it like We all know it's a fact there's a shortage of teachers. So what are schools doing in the meantime if there is a shortage of teachers? How is that being managed? So there is there's a lot of foundation work um, that maybe needs a little bit more at work. But in the meantime, there's a lot we can do. There is a lot we can do. Okay, And the course itself, we should um, touch on the details uh, that if we do have any teachers listening or uh, maybe people who are highly involved in in their school, in the community, and and they think it's something the school might be interested in looking at. Uh, This course, Playful, Calm, Creative Classrooms, how would people track it down, find you guys and engage with it? Yeah, so we are running our first uh, course on the 3rd of February in the Hartwings Holistic School in Lucan. Uh, That's an in-person course um, because we're learning 
as much as we're in there doing the workshops, we're not in the classroom five days a week. So um, we are hoping to co-create with that first group of teachers that sign up for the course on the 3rd of February. If people are interested, they just contact my page, um, diywellbeing.ie. If they just send me a message and I will get back onto them with the booking details. And then we'll take it from there. I like to do things in person. Martina likes to do things in person. It's lovely to have that face-to-face contact. Um, but we may record it and let people watch it. We may offer it to schools and come and deliver it as a workshop. Um, again, you know, this course came from responding to need. And I think we'll do the same as we roll it out. We'll respond to what the teachers are telling us they need. It's fascinating and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on health and fitness about it this evening and maybe the next time we chat we'll do it in person as well. It's been uh, great having you on the show again Sinead. Uh, The very best of luck with Playful Calm Creative Classrooms and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much David. Thank you. Athlone Tennis Club have six new courts and a brand new clubhouse and they're not stopping there. You're about to meet a man whose drive and determination has helped make it a reality. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. After years of planning and fundraising, a grand opening took place in the Midlands this week. Athlone Tennis Club has moved home. It's got six new courts, a new clubhouse, and there's plenty more to come. Pat Conway is the head of the fundraising committee for the club, and he joined us on Health and Fitness to tell us their story. Well, when I last on Midlands Radio, I outlined the plan that Athlone Tennis Club had, which was to build brand new tennis centre in Athlone. And that was going to uh, contain two phases. The first phase was to build six, sorry, three adult courses, three children's courses, and a brand new clubhouse in a complete new location. That has actually been achieved. That's what the minister is opening tomorrow. The second part of our plan is to build three further courts all of which will be under a dome. And we've made some progress in that regard. The minister will see an incredible new sporting immunity in Athlone as a result of what we've managed to um, achieve. Um, He will see that we have built in what was, in fact, an eyesore, a beautiful, good tennis complex that not alone plays well, but actually looks very well as well and fits in very well to the sports centre. Okay. And the, the, the club itself has, has actually moved um, as a consequence to this development as well. That's right. We've been in our uh, location, which was in Parky Kieron uh, on the Mahan Road for about 40 years. Uh, we were very settled there. But it, it transpired that as our lease was expiring, the landlord preferred we would move. And we took that as a kickstart to look for a more secure tenure and a much longer term plan. And we moved from Ballymore to the regional sports centre. So let's talk about the actual facilities that have been put in place. Uh, the courts, first and foremost, um, have you managed to have a couple of rallies on them or do you, do you, yes. do you know how they behave and, and, and how much of an improvement yeah. they would be for players and members? Oh, we've been playing since the 15th of December. Um, we're absolutely thrilled. We don't know ourselves. Um, 
the courts are a clay surface where we had astrobots before. Now, admittedly, the old courts were rather old, but these courts, by comparison, are superb. The ball is much truer in its bounce. It's a higher bounce. It's much easier for us to play. It's slightly slower so that we have longer rallies as well, and it's much more uh, entertaining. So we're delighted. We also have a new clubhouse, um, which costs us a lot of money, but it is an investment in the future. We then have three children's courts as well. Uh, they're smaller in terms of size. Uh, they're smaller, lower in terms of net, so it'll be much easier for young children to um, be introduced to tennis and much easier for them to play. Between the new surface, um, as you described there, the truer bounce of the ball, it being a bit slower and having children's courts with lower nets and smaller surface area. It sounds like the development of players and those joining a club and learning a sport, that's all massively enhanced by these new facilities. It, it, it really is. Now, um, as well as that, we've made a determined effort to widen the range of people who might engage with tennis. Um, we have a facility now where individuals, adults in particular, who are new to tennis can join in a, a kind of a safe, comfortable environment where we have what we call a beginner's night. They come and they're able to play with people at their own level. They get to know people and therefore they build up the teams that play with each other in the future. So it's, it's easier to integrate into the team now. We've also, uh, through under the auspices of Tennis Ireland, gone into the local primary schools with specific 10-week programs and introduction to tennis. This is where our coaches have gone in. They've produced a tennis ball and tennis rackets, uh, did coaching sessions with the children, hoping that that might be integrated into their um, practical exercises that they do during the week. And then we've also had a very interesting um, experiment as well, where we've worked with the Roscommon and Westmead partnerships, and we've introduced people with visual impairment, both adults and children. That's been fantastic. Now, what we hope to do in the future when we are able to um, build our home is that uh, we will be able to provide opportunities for local schools and also the groups that I've mentioned to come into structured programs into tennis. And it'll be much easier to have those structured programs when we have a dome because then we're not weather dependent. Yeah. You know, people can build a schedule and rely on it. So we'll be saying to the minister that um, we have these plans, we have the support of Tennis Ireland, to do it and therefore um, there's a great opportunity to expand the number of people who avail of tennis. The next now, as well as that, sorry continue Pat go, go on yeah as well as that um, we are making the case that we should be regarded as a regional centre for tennis because tennis is played in Tullamore it's played in Burr, Longford and Slow, Common Mullingar but all of them are outdoor sports centres and therefore, we're saying that if we can build a dome in Athlone, then we can have a regional sports centre where tennis can be played by everybody, whether independent. But also, we, uh, if we do manage to get uh, a dome, we'll be able to, to, to uh, have interprovincial as well as national competitions. But that also will mean that individuals who have talent 
and who are committed to tennis will have an opportunity to compete at higher levels than they would if they were just playing club members. So there are lots of lots of plans afoot. Yeah, um, there's a bunch you've said there that I'd love to get back to. Let's just uh, pick up on one of the last things you said there, which is uh, that uh, players hoping to uh, develop and compete at a higher level will be enabled to do so a little bit more at least by these forthcoming facilities if the dome comes in and with these six new courts and, and, and the clubhouse. Now, is that a specific and, and a particular impediment in this country, generally speaking, that if if a young person picks up tennis, uh, they are kind of hitting a ceiling at some point in terms of available facilities uh, in, in that respect? There is no doubt um, about that. Mind you, you know, to, to be, to play level, to play tennis at a high level, you have to have huge talent, huge commitment fantastic coaching and the opportunity to compete at the highest level. Mm. Now, without, because of our climate, we just don't have the continuity of coaching. We don't have the uh, ability to attract really top players to Ireland where our member or our uh, uh, players would compete with them. So definitely if we have a dome, it's a, it's a step enabling people who have talent to progress. And uh, I know just anecdotally, a couple of friends who know people who they, they coaches, if they become tennis coaches, they leave this country, they go to Southeast Asia, America, wherever it is where they can um, secure themselves in that respect. Uh, just to go back again to something you said in relation to, you know, talking about beginners nights. And, and that sounds like a really good idea because tennis, I suppose, is... Uh, structured in such an adversarial way your opponent is the other side of the net if, oh, you're, yes. if you're against yeah. someone of a high skill level I imagine it could be quite oh, dis- yeah. discouraging um, and going into the primary schools really positive to get people at such a young age this is a health and fitness show Pat so talk to me about the health or the fitness benefits as you'd perceive it particularly if you pick up the sport at a young age because it works the whole body I imagine and the brain and the mind and the eyes and everything well that's th- that what I mean we have members at five years of age, and our oldest playing member now, he only plays during the summer, is 90. He was 90 wow. last November. And he is superb. Oh, he, I mean, he really would give a game to anybody. But you're so right about so many aspects of uh, uh, tennis. You know, it demands that you're fit because you have to move quickly. It demands that you're mentally alert because you're making decisions so quickly. It also means that um, you forget everything when you're on the court for an hour uh, or an hour and a half because you're so focused. Because you can only play tennis if you do focus. So all those reasons, um, it's very, very uh, encouraging. Also, when you're off court, you're conscious that to play well, you've got to be fit. So you do things like you watch your diet a bit. Uh, you don't overindulge in anything. And that's not done very consciously, but it's kind of dubs done subconsciously you want to be good so that when you go and compete you can do as well as you can the other thing though that we do have is that you mentioned about the beginners that's so important because tennis is a very difficult game and it takes a while to build up a level of competence that enables you to play therefore when we 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 provide a safe environment for people to begin and to meet people they can play well with but also where we have competitive matches where we have leagues we try and rank people. I put them into groups where they're not going to be annihilated. Uh, and I've been annihilated a few times. <laughs> you get over it. Yeah, the um, 
it's a great point that it's great to hear that people can play the sport for their whole life because a lot of sports don't lend themselves in that direction. Uh, just as we finish up our conversation, Pat, you've been the head of fundraising for this project. You've now seen the delivery and realisation of the first phase of the club's ambition and what would have been a personal ambition. Uh, what does it feel like to have um, solid success and then what does it mean in terms of the track record of the group going forward to secure more funding? You've got something to fall back on and point to. It must mean a lot. You're right. To be honest with you, I look on it in amazement at the uh, at what we have achieved because it has taken, we started this in 2015 and it it's at, at times it seemed like a theoretical prospect that might we'd always be asked, but we'd never we'd never actually read a con- reach a conclusion because it's been a you know a road that has many 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 turns and twists we had to overcome, but we've got there. And I look on and I am amazed, uh, but I'm also delighted. And the other thing that has delighted me is there hasn't been a work of criticism from any of our members, which I kind of didn't expect. Uh, not a word. They are absolutely thrilled. You're also right. Proved that we can deliver. Therefore, any grant aiding agency can rely on the fact that we will deliver. And this is a point we'll be making to the Minister on Friday. If uh, people listening love the idea of the success you've had in installing the new facilities and the ambition for more and, and what sounds like a very promising future and they want to become members, they can look up Athlone Tennis Club. They can just Google yes. it and there's yes. a membership page on the website. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, great stuff. And all, all well. And we can fit in, we, as I say, we can fit in any level of competence. Well, Pat, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on health and fitness and uh, no doubt we'll make sure that we catch up with you again as uh, the endeavours of the fundraising group and the, the club itself continue. Thanks, David. Westmeath and Mullingar are boxing mad. You're about to hear from a man vying to find a state-of-the-art home for the sport in the region. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. A major development is taking place in the Midlands. As with many of these projects, it's not the work of a day, a week, a month or even a year. The regional sports complex in Robinstown, Mullingar is set to offer the people of Westmeath with a brand new state-of-the-art sports facilities. A man whose life outside of politics has been dedicated to boxing, Rochford Bridge Boxing Club's Andrew Duncan, tells Midlands 103 why boxing should be housed in the new sports centre. Well, I suppose historically the the Robinstown Sports Campus uh, was the, the original proposal for it was my, was put forward by myself and Councillor John Shaw, and it it was it was you know we recognised as as did everybody that there is a requirement for a regional sports centre and certainly in terms of boxing um, of all of the sports it is probably one of the most financially deprived and it doesn't have the wherewithal or the resources like a lot of the GA clubs or maybe the, the rugby club, um, to be able to have a purpose-built facility. And, but it also happens to be Ireland's most successful uh, Olympic sport. And it also has probably, Mullingar is probably the highest proportion of boxers per head of population of anywhere in the country, possibly even in the world. It's, it, it wouldn't be a million miles away from it, that's for sure. But they don't have permanent homes. There's four boxing clubs in Mullingar, and then there's three within the immediate periphery. And none of those have got permanent homes. And it would it would make an awful lot of sense were there to be maybe a centre of excellence or something along those uh, lines that, that all of the clubs could use in Mullingar. 
If I take you back to before the high performance unit and Billy Walsh and all of that, uh, Ireland was underperforming essentially in, in boxing internationally. And we saw just how much that bit of infrastructure and that bit of investment did for us uh, on that international stage with the boxers uh, who were already matured, let's say. Um, considering the popularity of the sport uh, in the region and the talent of a lot of the fighters and uh, generally the enthusiasm for boxing, uh, what would this development do if indeed it did come through? Um, well, I suppose if you only measured it in terms of medals, it would it would undoubtedly bring more Olympic medals to Mullingar. There's already an, a silver medal uh, in Mullingar, but it would bring, I have no doubt, it would bring gold medals. Um, and 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 to me, it isn't even that. You know, like that's that's the barometer that's used to measure it in terms of its success internationally. But boxing is, is a much more grassroots organisation than almost any other sport. It gives a focal point and direction to uh, children that may not necessarily fall into some of the other sports. It's, it, and it's, it's an old cliche, but it, it's a very accurate and it, it is the reality. Um, and something like that that has concrete permanent roots there would, would undoubtedly put Mullingar uh, at the forefront of boxing in Ireland. Um, it, it couldn't do anything only good. Yeah, that's a great point that you make about its place and its role in society and in uh, communities across the Midlands. It's an outlet for those who maybe don't want to buy into the GAA scene or the soccer scene, as it were. Um, it's a sport that has had a long history with attracting those uh, people who are on the periphery of the community otherwise. Yeah, well, well look, the likes of the GAA, there, there's some organisation, they're fantastic, and there's, there's an awful lot of boxers that play GAA, loads of them, it's, it's, and, and also soccer and, 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 and rugby. But there are some kids that just don't fit into that model, and they do fit into the boxing model. And it gives them, it gives them a chance to be real people in, in, involved in, in real-life situations that maybe they wouldn't necessarily get the opportunity to do so outside of boxing. And it gives, it gives an interaction into society that maybe they wouldn't necessarily have. Um, and it's maybe something that should be developed further. But boxing really, really is one of those unique sports that it is open to all, but tends to be a working-class sport. But it, it is open to all. But it, is certainly, it certainly guides kids, as I said, it's an old cliche, but it does guide kids that may not necessarily go down the right path, it guides them along the right path and gives them an anchor for for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it it does seem to be a sport that's strongly grounded and has a strong values system. Let's talk about the physical benefits of boxing because uh, just from personal experience, having done a bit of kickboxing uh, years ago, I've tried many sports, but I never felt fitter or stronger than when I went to the gym a couple of times a week and went through the training that you do there. If we got large numbers of young people, increased numbers of young people taking part in boxing, uh, the health benefits would be there to look at as well, wouldn't they? Absolutely, and you you can see the problem with with obesity increasing throughout throughout the world, not just Ireland. But um, and there's a huge, I suppose, temptation for for kids now not to leave the house. Um, boxing is just one of those sports that were you to take it in any way seriously, you have to be very disciplined, and that that in itself is is, is a great trait to have in life. But it's the health benefits are there are multitude for the rest of their lives if they get into the habit of minding their body, minding what they eat, because you can't box at any sort of a level without minding what you eat. You can't do it without being diligent at training. You can't do it without being disciplined. It's, it's, it's just a fantastic sport. It does not get the recognition it deserves. 
And when it comes to particularly martial arts, so we'll put boxing in with this as well, uh, there's a teaching element to it as well. And I don't mean that the head coach teaches young children. What tends to happen in these gyms is um, the teaching cascades down and and, uh, young lads with a bit more experience will take even uh, younger boxers aside and show them a thing or two. And uh, that dynamic uh, is great for personal development. It is, and it's, 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 you're right, an umbrella system, it, it, it really is, and an awful lot of coaches are not coaches, they're mentors, they're, 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 they give life guidance, not just coaching guidance. And then those that are involved in the sport for a while, the, it, it, club environments become quite close-knit, particularly boxing club environments, because it's, it's, it's a fairly tough sport, it's not a simple sport. So people that share that same uh, passion for it tend, tend to have uh, an empathy with, with each other that wouldn't necessarily follow it with, with all sports. There doesn't seem to be as much, um, you'll see the interplay between, between different clubs when some of them might be doing well at international level. All the clubs come in behind them. The, the, the jealousy factor that might exist in some other clubs, it isn't there because they all recognise what it takes to get to that level and they all want to be there. So let's just move things back to um, the idea of uh, this regional sports complex and boxing maybe having a permanent home uh, in there. Uh, Talk to us about the process uh, that's practically taking place at the moment and when we may see developments on this piece of information and and generally how this complex will be comprised. Well, I suppose initially what's happening, like there's been huge impetus in relation to the Robinson Sports Campus from the local swimming club in Mungar, mm. which really picked up the ball and drove it on. Myself and Councillor John, as I said earlier, or Councillor John Shaw, we, we initiated and put it in there. It, it's, it, it, it happened at a poor enough time when things were quiet. There was an awful lot of uh, issues in, in around finance. But the members of Westmead County Council set aside a portion of the budget each year to enable the seed funding to start. And what's after happening now is that planning permission has been granted and there is now a design team um, setting up the outline for what will go in there. And that's where I see the opportunity for boxing to be in there at the very start to try and see if they can get um, a portion of the development set aside for a permanent boxing club. Andrew, you've been great with your time. We wish you the very best in this particular enterprise. Uh, thanks very much for joining us on Health and Fitness this evening. Thanks a lot, David. That's the show for this week. Thank you for your company. Joe Cooney is next with Country Roads. I'll talk to you soon.